Welcome to the June 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. We're going to start off this episode with a little tree talk from one of our listeners who shares a bit of her own genealogical journey. And then we'll visit with Brian Sheffy, the author of the new book, Practical Genealogy, 50 Simple Steps to Research Your Diverse Family History. Diane Southard is back for another DNA Deconstructed segment. And author James Beidler returns to the podcast to provide you with a wealth of German genealogy resources. And finally, we'll wrap things up with the editor of Family Tree Magazine, Andrew Cook, who will give us a sneak peek at what we can look forward to in the next issue of Family Tree Magazine, as well as some of the exciting new online genealogy courses coming up in July. As always, we have a lot to cover, so let's get to it. First up is Tree Talk. It's time for a little tree talk. And today I want to share a note from Pat R., who wrote in to share a bit of her own genealogical journey. Pat writes, On my mother's side, the family only knew dates where the grandparents were born. Before the days of internet, I was fortunate to spend a week at the Family History Library at Salt Lake City, Utah. Due to the wealth of research material there, I was able to trace quite a number of my family lines back to the early 1600s in Massachusetts. There were a few books where I found family stories that were thrilling to read. They helped give our family tree some real history. From a baby rescued from a bear while his mom was picking berries in the 1700s, to Quakers living in peace with the original indigenous peoples, to children taken during raids by natives with one child found by her siblings when they were all seniors, living happily with her family on a reservation. I am so thankful the books and research that are available at the Family History Library for anyone to access at no cost. And research volunteers are so helpful. It makes me feel so glad that the people that came before us are known and not forgotten. You can share your story of discovery, just like Pat did, And you might just hear it here on the Family Tree Magazine podcast. Email your story to familytree at yankeepub.com. In our featured interview this month, I've invited Brian Sheffy to the show. Now, he's the author of the new book. It's called Practical Genealogy, 50 Simple Steps to Research Your Diverse Family History. Welcome to the show, Brian. Well, thank you, Lisa. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. And I guess before we start answering questions, I just wanted to to say that I've always really, really enjoyed the Family Tree magazine and the website and the articles that you write, because back in the day when I was a new genealogist, that was a great resource to have. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Well, it's great to have you on the show. We love seeing, of course, new books coming out on genealogy. So tell us, what was the motivation for you behind writing this book? I was very fortunate that the publisher, uh, Callisto Media, uh, they reached out to me. Uh, They sent me an email asking if I would be really interested in writing a kind of basic, user-friendly, how-to-do genealogy book. Um, I just kind of leapt at the chance. Now, this one is 50 Steps. And so you've kind of broken it down, and and you're saying that they're simple. So are you in the hopes of kind of helping new people come into genealogy and get started? Well, 
I'm hoping that it's going to be versatile enough. And I guess the feedback we've been getting about the book is that it's really useful for newbie genealogists and intermediate genealogists. What got you started in genealogy? And when did you get started? I got started about 2009. And it was for it was um, as a birthday present for my dad. So I called my mom. I think it was for his 78th birthday. I mean, what do you give a 78-year-old that literally has everything? Right. And my mother was like, do not buy your father one more thing. She's like, <laughs> I'm trying to get rid of all of the clutter. Don't buy him anything. Um, his parents divorced when he was really young, and he didn't really know that much about his father's side of the family. And I thought that would make a wonderful birthday present. And was able to find what I wanted to find at that time. And then I was just, I was hooked. I just, I wanted to know more. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, you have to tell us, what was your dad's reaction to getting such an amazingly thoughtful gift? It was, it was bittersweet. Yeah. He was fascinated by, by what I found about his family and who he was descended from and related to. But it was kind of bittersweet because he never, he thought all of his father's siblings had died years before, um, he was born mm -hmm. and come to find out that most of them were still very much alive and well and kicking and up until I think in his early 20s. And, you know, he just never had an opportunity to to know them or to uh, to meet them. Wow. So that kind of brought all that to the forefront. Well, let's talk a little bit about the steps, because there'll be a lot of people who will uh, want to make sure, one, that they're getting off to a good start, but also if they've been at this for a while, I think it's a very common <laughs> phenomenon to discover, I've been missing some steps. <laughs> so I wanted to start really towards the beginning of the book with step number two, which is you say is, what's your starting point? And I think research questions and plans, which is what you talk about in step two, is one of the areas where I think many people kind of skim over it, you know, they're so excited to get started, they, they don't take those few extra minutes to kind of plan out their research. Talk a little bit about this and, and what you recommend for people in putting together your research plan. Mm -hmm. um, I say that genealogy is the art of answering five pretty much basic questions. Who, what, why, where, and when. Mm -hmm. And I think really having a good understand. I guess first the, the first step is deciding what side of the family, your mother or your father's side, you're going to research. And then really start thinking about them as people, start thinking about the kinds of records that you might be able to find for them. I mean, thankfully, you know, we really, you know, uh, if you're starting it today, your parents and your grandparents are going to be fairly well documented. They're going to be birth certificates. Even if they're delayed birth certificates, death certificates, marriages, and, and all the rest, um, but to really, you know, think about our ancestors as being three-dimensional people, um, and then start thinking about ways that you can you can actually start tracking them down, finding the documents that you need to to prove that you found the correct type of people. Um, and I go into a lot about the importance of doing a research log. Um, because computers aren't infallible. Um, I've lost more hard drives than I even care to think about. So even, <laughs> so even having something like a research log, which I go into in Chapter 2, you know, what that is, how you can record your findings, the documents that you found, either family members that you've spoken to, just a kind of central repository for all that information. 
Now, there'll be some intermediate genealogists listening to the show who'll be going, I wonder what he's using. So tell us, what do you use? What tools do you use for your research log? I am very old school. I mean, people will probably laugh. I think I'm in touch with my like 19th century ancestors. (laughs) I actually have fat, um, just fat lined paper notebooks. And I just scribble all of my notes, all of my findings into that. And then I transcribe them into my family, you know, uh, basically the family tree on something like ancestry or my heritage. So I always, always have those notebooks and it's one notebook per family. Actually, it's one notebook per line. I have hundreds of them now, but whatever happens to my hard drives, I always have that as a backup. Nothing like the physical items (laughs) to be able to refer back to. And you know, the other bonus is the way that I remember things because Mm -hmm. I actually physically write it down. It's, it's kind of seared into my memory. That's a good point. That is kind of one of the ways in which we do learn things, isn't it? I find transcribing old letters and journals really helpful. And, and they'll bring to mind questions that I hadn't thought of when I was just reading it. So that's a great point. What are some of the other steps? I mean, you've got lots here to choose from in the book. But what are some of the other ones that you think that people might be skipping or not even be aware that should be part of their plan? I guess I'm I'm one of life's natural organizers. Um, I can't stand mess. And when you, I come from many, many lines that had huge numbers of kids. I mean, starting with my Quaker ancestors who were having du- double digit kids like every generation. It really is easy for, and you're collecting records on all of those people. So it's really easy for just your resources to just kind of spiral out of control. So even having like a simple, I'm not a librarian. I'm going to say that straight away. I've got my, <laughs> I've got my library system that works for me. Mm-hmm. But even coming up, and I go into this in the book as well, um, coming up with a directory on my computer. So instead of having to think, oh, where did I store that Patrick Henry document or his picture or his will? Because I know how everything is arranged on my computer. If anyone else asks me for it, I can just get in find it within like two minutes. That's key. I always say it's, it's like when a tree falls in the forest, if nobody hears it, you know, does it really fall? If you can't put your hands on it, does it really exist? I mean, does it count? (laughs) You know, we have to be able to retrieve things. And I agree, everybody has their own unique system. We tend to think in terms of, oh, it's got to be very rigid, but it's got to work for you, right? Absolutely. And I would say another key thing is always document your research. Because you're going to be all, I mean, especially if your trees are public or your work is public, people will, you know, at some point down the line, they will ask, well, how do you know that Joe Bloggs was born in 1611? Mm -hmm. So instead of going, hmm, where did I find that? Because if you're organized, you should be able to get a hold of the document and be able to tell someone, well, you know, I found his baptism certificate type thing. And of course, I see in the book, you have Appendix B, which is the citation formats by information source type. So uh, you're talking about really citing your sources, making sure you have that trail. Is that right? Exactly. Um, As a matter of fact, just last week, someone asked me about um, an ancestor of mine called James Henry Hammond in South Carolina. And they asked me where I got a hold of his his estate inventory. So I went to my notebook and I looked it up and I'm like, oh, that's when I went to the Library of Congress. It's on this real number. Um, this is the reference number. So if, if you need to get that original, that copy of that document, 
if you go to the Library of Congress, that's the information you need to give them. And they were so appreciative of that. Exactly. And the further we, we move along in our research, the harder it is just to pull that out of the top of our heads. We really have to have those citations to help us. I noticed in step number seven, you have um, a chapter called Reflect. And that might not be something we normally see in a genealogy book. Tell us a little bit about step seven. Um, that was something that I chatted about with uh, Callisto. And because I'm, I'm an academic, I, I'm a part-time university lecturer. And it's just, it's a standard part of teaching. Mm-hmm. So at certain points in the book, um, especially if you're going over kind of really key concepts and points, you know, it's giving people permission to admit that they don't fully understand something or they didn't quite grasp something. And it's like, well, before you try to apply what you've just learned to the learning that you're going to do, just go back to specific parts of a chapter and, you know, just make sure that you get really comfortable with um, the concept that you've just explored. Right. And I see, actually, you bring that into chapters as they move along through the book. Step 40, step 50 is your last one. Mm-hmm. And That's Reflect right. is still part of that. Um, anything else that you want to let people know about this book and um, what you're hoping them to, to get out of it? Maybe even suggestions on how they might use it effectively. It might be, because I know that you have, you have a copy, so it might be good to get your feedback. What we, what Callisto and I really try to do is to come up with a logical progression. So I appreciate that if you're brand new to genealogy, even the chapters about how to organize your research might seem a bit challenging, or even what the best genealogical practice is, because we spend some time exploring, exploring that too. Um, but hopefully it, it, it comes across as a, as I said, as a nice synergistic kind of stepping process in the in the learning journey, mm-hmm. and you know, obviously the the later chapters kind of delve into more complicated kind of concepts or record sets or things to think about. Um, but having read through it, I, you know, I, I hope that people will familiarize themselves enough with the book to be able to just go kind of flip through it as as they need it. Well, I can really see a value in taking a few minutes right out of the gate to just read through all of the steps and kind of see how they're all kind of working together. And then, of course, you have a wonderful index in the back so they can jump to specific topics. Lots there for uh, genealogists to take advantage of. Of course, the book we're talking about is Practical Genealogy, 50 Simple Steps to Research Your Diverse Family History. Brian, wonderful to talk to you. Congratulations on the book. And gosh, thanks so much for being here on the Family Tree Magazine podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. In this month's DNA Deconstructed segment, Diane Southard is back. She's the author of Your DNA Guide, the book, and she's here to talk DNA matches. Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa. Hey, when someone tests with one of the genealogy DNA testing sites, they get an initial batch of matches, of course, and very quickly, it sometimes seems that match list starts to grow. And I know that one of the first questions that people have is, which of these matches should I research first? <laughs> Which seems like a simple question. I'm guessing it may not be as much of a simple answer. What do you tell people when they ask you that? Well, first of all, you're right. I think people have no idea how many people they're related to. And it's 
overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> it's a huge list. Um, and it's exciting, I think, in a lot of ways just to think that, you know, I don't know these people and yet our DNA is connecting us in a way that says we share family. Like, that's a really powerful concept, I think. So first, just step back and just let yourself be amazed for a minute that you didn't tell the system you were related to these people. You don't know how you're related to these people, but your DNA says that you are. And that's, that's pretty significant, I think. So that's the first thing. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I think so. I agree. Yeah. Um, And second, I think something people do um, that is they look at their match list and of course you start at the top and you're like, oh yeah, well that's John. He's, he's my first cousin. I know him. And oh, there's Betsy. Yeah. Yeah. She's my, she's my grandma's sister's child. I know her, you know, and we're like not impressed again. This is significant information that I think we're glossing over. So I think the first matches that you should take a good look at are your known matches. So understand that each person that you see on that match list that you know your relationship to is a validation of the genealogy research you've already done. That is a really great point. You can look at it and think that's already an answer. But I'm guessing that their DNA, if if you're looking at it, and you start working with, with them might reveal things and help you make other connections, I would guess. Certainly. And don't neglect the fact that they have their own set of stories and experiences and maybe pictures that you don't have. So I think the first thing we should do is focus on the known matches and let's get whatever information we can. Let's let's develop some camaraderie. Let's investigate their sources. Let's, you know, let's get the most out of the people that are that are our known matches that maybe we haven't thought to ask for specific information before. Great point. And I love that it kind of flags us, hey, this person seems to be interested more so in the family history or their own DNA than maybe other relatives. So there you might have a partner in crime. Exactly. A research buddy. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about when when I look at all those matches, when it grows so quickly, I tend to think, I better figure out what it is I want to find out. Does that have a big impact on who you choose to look into? Because there aren't enough hours in the day to dig into all your matches. Exactly. No, you're exactly right. It's just like every other genealogy endeavor. You want to start with your research goal and you need to have a research plan. So those basic genealogy steps certainly should not be ignored just because we're looking at DNA. It's all the same process. So you need to focus on the matches that are going to find you the answer to the question at hand. So that's where your known matches actually come in the, the strongest. So let's say again that you found this second cousin and the second cousin shares your great grandparents. That's, that's what second cousins do, right? They share great grandparents. So let's say your great grandparents were George and Mary. So if you want to research Mary's family, you, she's your brick wall. You don't know what her maiden name is even. She's just Mary, George's wife. So if we want to focus on Mary, we need to find the DNA matches that are connected to her. And that starts with finding DNA matches that are connected to George and Mary. We really have to think about our ancestors in a couple because it takes two, right, to to make a child. And so every DNA match that we're connected to connects us to a couple, not to a person, but to a couple. So your second cousin, all the DNA that you share with your second cousin is DNA that you got from George and Mary. So that's, that's a significant thought process to look at your cousin and say, cousin, wow, we share, 
you know, maybe 200, we call them centimorgans as a unit of measure for DNA. And all of that DNA came from George and Mary. Okay, great. So we use this tool called the shared matches tool. So you take your second cousin, you click on shared matches, which is available at every testing company. And that one act, that little button acts as this amazing filter on your DNA match list. It takes your match list from thousands of people down to just a few. You'll only see the people that are sharing DNA with you and your second cousin. That means that most of the people on this new filtered list will be somehow related to George and Mary. So that's those pretty significant. Are the you focus on. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think about when DNA matches first came out, that wasn't even available. I mean, this is a exactly. huge boon as right. far as saving yes. time. Wow. Okay. So they have kind of filtered it down. And I'm guessing, though, that this is just a snapshot in time. We can expect that other people will show up in this list as time passes. For sure. Exactly. So you run the shared matches tool periodically to gather new people in. And then you've got this handful. Maybe it depends totally on your ancestors' location, how long they've been in the U.S. I was working with a client this morning, and she has four shared matches with this one second cousin of hers and other people have you know 78 wow. <laughs> so you know it really depends on your family how big the families were how many people have tested it has a lot of factors but in the end it's just a smaller list than you were dealing with before and then you do genealogy essentially i mean there are other filtering down techniques there's other things we could talk about but that's kind of outside i think the scope of our our short conversation here, but essentially that's how you start. And then you just look at each of those matches on that list one by one. And remember, some of them are going to be related to George. They're going to be related to George's parents or grandparents. And those matches are not our concern because we want to focus on Mary. So essentially you take that whole list. Maybe there's 70 people on the list after you do shared matches. So then you go through that list and you kind of cross off, oh, that's George's line. Oh, for sure. Yeah, they were all from New New Mexico. So I can see all of the New Mexicos. And, and Mary's family, they were from the East. We don't know how she got to the West, but she we know she was born in the East. But George's family, all in the West. So it's it's a way that you can just start to filter that smaller list. Let's take off everybody that has ancestors from New Mexico and let's focus on those. Who, oh, I see New Hampshire. I see Vermont. Those are all places that I know Mary was associated with. So I'm going to focus now on those matches as as my my focus group. And I know that you talk a lot about what you call best matches and the DNA system and, and the genealogy website kind of puts people in order of how close they are to us. Would you just kind of touch on that real quickly? Sure. So when you do that that filtered list, now we've got this group of matches that we think are related to George and Mary. And at the top are going to be people who are more closely related to you than at the bottom. And so for for George and Mary, if you want to think about something, think about how Mary likely had brothers and sisters, Right. And so those brothers and sisters got married and had kids who had kids who had kids. So what would their relationship be to you? Well, the first relationship they could possibly be to you would be your third cousins. They would share Mary's parents in common with you. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you think about that first, then you can go to that section of your DNA matches that lists all of those third cousins. Let's say in that group of 70 that we found using shared matches, we have 20 third cousins. Now we can see easily that 18 of them are related to George. So we can cross those off. 
now you've got this group of people who are all about third cousins to you, who are all from the Northeast. They should share a common ancestor with each other. You should be able to see that they're connected to each other and therefore help you identify who's, who, who Mary's parents are. It's an exciting time. <laughs> DNA, I mean, it's amazing it all the different ways you can approach it. So we have to think about our, our question, what our research question is, what our have a plan for kind of how we're going to go about it. And that best matches, sounds like, are not always the ones very closest to us. They're the closest to us within the question that we have and who we're trying exactly. to investigate. Yes. yes. And then, and then exactly. I love you're talking about using location also to help um, kind of narrow the pool down. Wonderful ideas. Thank you so much for shedding a little more light on our DNA matches. Thank you, Diane. Yeah, of course, Lisa. It was great to talk to you. If you have German ancestors, then you are in for a treat because the May-June issue of Family Train Magazine has a terrific new article by Jim Beidler, and he's pulled together 12 of the best German genealogy websites. The article is called Sturm and Drag, and here he is to take us on a tour. Hi, Jim. Thank you, Lisa, and I'm, I'm delighted to, uh, to be here with uh, the magazine's podcast audience. Well, one of the things that is distinctive is that um, there has been a huge increase in the amount of digitized church records that are available on websites. And uh, church records are really, as, as my, my late mentor, John T. Humphrey, uh, once called it, the heart and soul of German genealogy. And uh, on uh, four of the top 12 sites, uh, church records are either the, the only thing uh, or are a major asset of that. In Germany, unlike America, where you, know, you have 77 different flavors of uh, religious groups. Basically, you got your Catholics and you got your Protestants in Germany. Right. Uh, right. And, the, uh, and the, the Protestants go by uh, the name Evangelische. Uh, it does not translate very well as evangelical into in English. Just think of them as generic Protestants. And there's a website called archeon.de that it has brought together the, all of the regional uh, state Protestant churches in Germany to digitize their records and and put them on the internet. It's not a free site. It's free to browse uh, what uh, what uh, parishes that they have there. Uh, but the subscriptions are as low as twenty euros. So it's not that you you need a uh, a long term commitment to it. Yeah, that's a little uh, different than some of our regular genealogy sites here in the U.S. where you're subscribing for a whole year at Archeon. Can exactly. you do just like a month, right? Yes, yes. And, and actually, you, you even have one that, that you can kind of turn on and off the clock on oh. uh, that I, I believe they call that 20 days access that you kind of start and stop it when you want to. But the uh, the one month is, is what, uh, truthfully, that I've generally gotten. Uh, and that's 20 euros. And so even, even it's economic even if you only have a couple of parishes to, uh, to look up. Uh, and then you can print off the site. And it's not, it's not searchable. It's not name searchable. 
Uh, but uh, it's browsable that you browse through the digitized records yourself. Uh, and then on the, the Roman Catholic side, matricula.eu, uh, they, they started uh, basically as an Austrian site. And uh, over the last decade, uh, they had uh, uh, digitized most of the Austrian Catholic records, some of the ones from the old Austro-Hungarian Empire, including the old Sudetenland that was mostly ethnic German. Uh, and now they've expanded to, they've worked out deals with the, uh, the Catholic dioceses in, uh, in Germany proper. Uh, so, so that's still, that's still up and coming, uh, but is, uh, is really filling in what had been, had been a, been a big gap. Prior to Archeon and Matricula, the, the standbys, uh, were family search. Uh, you know, the, the family history library had uh, microfilm German church records uh, going back to the to the post-World War II period. Uh, and, of course, most of those microfilms have now been uh, been digitized or and or made searchable by family search indexing. Uh, and Ancestry, they have been aggressive in uh, in working with some of the German archives uh, to get some of their holdings up. Plus, they. Uh, they have uh, uh, some of the the best collections of ethnic German church records in America that a lot of times you know you haven't proven the village of origin in Germany uh, and so you're needing to, to find that from uh, from the um, uh, different the different records of the immigrant family oh I love ancestry city directories as well in Germany those have just broken things open for me it's been amazing yeah that that but both both uh, ancestry and family search uh, have growing collections uh, the the city directories are kind of the the easiest to, to use uh, but they also have uh, local city records like because for the most part uh, German citizenship, was based more locally mm-hmm. rather than a than a national citizenship. So a lot of times you have good records on even the city level, and and sometimes going back hundreds of years because they were they were keep trying to keep track of people. Uh, and as you note, ancestry and and especially family search, uh, they have growing collections of those records. And then will we also find some German records over at My Heritage? Yes, yeah, My Heritage. Uh, not as big a collection, but I, I just did a, a webinar uh, for my heritage through uh, Legacy Family Tree the other week, and uh, they they do they do have a smattering of things from all around Germany. Probably their marquee collection is they they have extracts from West Prussian church registers, which is now one of the areas of uh, the former German Empire that's now in Poland. It's uh, much more difficult to access on the ground, but having that West Prussian collection uh, really helps a lot of people who have ancestors in the former German East. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know you've got 12. We've covered about five of them. What's another standout for you in this collection of websites? Well, uh, uh, two others that pair together is Myers-Gaz, which is an electronic version of the Myers-Gaz and Tier which is the leading geographical dictionary of the German Empire. That's a must for every uh, German genealogist to use because it helps you locate all these villages uh, that either are in Germany today but may have been merged into a larger uh, city. 
uh, or, again, in that former eastern area, and now they go by Polish names on right. modern maps. So, And then as a complement to that is Kartenmeister. Uh, Kartenmeister is a gadgeteer especially for those former eastern areas. That's, that's what they do, and they'll give you the German name, the Polish name, uh, and uh, more information about uh, locating the, the towns, what parishes, of what church parishes uh, it was a part of, and so forth. I'm familiar with Myers Gas. I've been there several times. It's, I can't imagine doing the German research without it. Um, are yep. some of these we have seen before? Are they continuing to evolve? <clears throat> are you seeing continued improvements in in these German resources? Absolutely. Yeah. There, there's more and more uh, records online. There's more and more helps that are online. Uh, and the next site that I would tell you about is compgen.de or genealogy.net. goes by two different names. Uh, and, and this is a Germany-based site. It's run by the German Computer Genealogy Group. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, in my book, Trace Your German Roots Online, I, I call it an octopus of many different arms <laughs> of, the, of the site because it has its own gazetteer. It has a link to uh, Germany's leading library of digitized historical documents, uh, and it has literally hundreds now and growing numbers of the Ortsippenbucher. Those are the village history books of German villages that basically put together all the families in their groups from extracted church records, and these um, uh, these Bucher, like I say, they're they're there, there are a couple thousand villages uh, for which they've been done, uh, but there are several hundred that are right on there, searchable uh, all once on the uh, compgen.de site. Now, folks who are listening might be a little concerned about the language barrier. Tell us a little bit about you know how folks can deal with that issue. Yeah, uh, well, the the big the big German site that I just uh, just profiled, uh, they do have a kind of sort of English version. Uh, the kind of sort of English version, you know, in other words, some of the things are translated and some, some are not. The other thing you can do is you can clip the individual URLs of that site into Google and ask for a translation, and usually it'll bring back a serviceable translation. Excellent. And I know it seems like once you start working with the records themselves, when you're reviewing things like the church records you mentioned at the beginning of this segment, you know, once we get the feel for what the headings are on the columns, that tends to get easier pretty quickly, doesn't it? Oh, sure. Yeah. Because I mean, if you if you learn what I call tombstone Germany, uh, <laughs> you know, your, 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 your top hundred words, uh, you'll be you'll be able to, to read a lot of these records, because they are they are heavily formatted. Uh, but but uh, another thing that I'd like to to cite, uh, I'd like to tell you about in, in that vein is Grimm's Vorterbuch. This is the dictionary by the, the brothers Grimm from the mid 1800s. Yes, these are the fairy tale Grimm brothers. Before they collected fairy tales, they were linguists. Wow! Uh, and and this is a this is a great site for the many archaic German words that aren't going to show up in a modern uh, German-English dictionary, they'll be here on this Grimm's, uh, Grimm's Vorterbuch, uh, and uh, you, you can you know, find out some of the old occupations, some of the old names for diseases, 
and uh, and things for that. It's a it's a real again. It's in German, uh, and you may have to clip it into to Google Translate. Uh, but it's a, a great thing to start. Fantastic. Well, you've given us twelve great places to start. Uh, again, it's called Sturm and Drang. That's the article in this issue of Family Tree Magazine. And of course, Jim is the author of the book, Trace Your German Roots Online by Family Tree Books. Jim, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for all of these terrific German resources. Great, Lisa, and Auf Wiedersehen. Before we wrap up this episode, let's check in at the editor's desk with Andrew Cook. He's the editor of Family Tree Magazine. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Lisa. How are you doing? You're still working at home? Yes, we are on week 11 of working from home, but, uh, you know, we're still working hard to create great genealogy content for our readers and our listeners, because, uh, you know, genealogy is one of the things that you can do from home, fortunately. So uh, hopefully people have been making some great research finds in the last several weeks. We're recording here. It's almost June. This episode will be going out in June of 2020. And um, I'd love to have you tell us a little sneak peek about what's coming up in the July-August issue of the magazine. Yeah, it's hard to believe we're already this far in the year, but the July-August issue should be shipping out uh, to subscribers now, and it's also on newsstands across the country. And we're most excited about our big cover feature, which is our uh, annual list of the 101 best genealogy websites. And if you can believe it, we've been putting out this list for 21 years. Wow. Uh, yeah. And we're always so excited to highlight some of the great work that the different organizations and websites are, are doing in the community and uh, these great resources that are available to genealogists. Well, and it's I think it's so worth doing every year because you bring us new websites maybe we haven't seen, but you also get back to the tried and true ones who are constantly evolving. So there's this like a new website every year, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And in fact, this year we have a record 17 sites that are on the this year's list that were not on the previous year's list. So wow. Yeah. And um, the one highlight, one highlight that I'm really excited about is behindthename.com, which is a database of different given names and their meanings and origins and popularity over time. So you might not think that would be... Uh, at first glance, it's not a, a genealogy website, but uh, it can provide some really great social history information for you, uh, provide some great context for uh, family names that have been passed down, and even give you some ideas for uh, different nicknames and uh, alternate names that you could search for in online record databases. Oh, how neat. You know, I think a lot of times we see a surname and we don't realize it actually is a word in another language, you know, so there's a mm-hmm. whole, you know, history there to be discovered. The 101 best genealogy websites list, is that something that we can find all or part of online as well or or strictly in this issue of the magazine? Well, you should get the issue of the magazine, but you can also find yes. it online at uh, familytreemagazine.com slash best dash genealogy dash websites. I know in addition to getting this beautiful magazine out uh, each month, you also, of course, continue to put out new and updated courses over at Family Tree University. And Amanda was here last month. She was talking to us a little bit about that. What are some of the most interesting and exciting topics that are coming up here as we get into the summer of 2020? Yeah, we're already thinking ahead to July, and uh, we're offering some courses that have really been popular in the past In fact, they were so popular earlier this year that we wanted to bring them back. We've got courses on how to use Ancestry.com, 
and how to use the Family Tree Maker software, right. two extremely popular programs that are interrelated, as a matter of fact, and we're offering them as two separate courses in July. Also this month, coming up in July, we have the Google for Genealogy course that you, Lisa, are hosting, and we're very excited for that, just giving an opportunity for learners to see what all what Google can do as a search engine, as a historical image archive, as a mapping tool, all kinds of great, great um, functionality there that a lot of people don't know about. Yeah, and this is going to be a newly updated version of the course. That's what I'm mm-hmm. excited about. It's going to be yeah. all fresh and new for 2020. So it's just like with the, the 101 websites, there's always something new to learn about, uh, even with tools we've been using on a regular basis for years. Absolutely. And I also understand that you're going to have a new course on Scandinavian research. That sounds yes. good. Yes, it, we're excited about that. Um, David A. Frixell, who's the author of The Family Tree Scandinavian Genealogy Guide, yeah. is putting that together for us. So uh, if you have roots in, in Denmark or Norway or Sweden, it's going to be a great, a great resource for you. Oh, well, and all you guys listening, you've heard Dave here on the show. You're going to get mm-hmm. him all to yourself in this course. So uh, these are online courses, self-paced. But we also have opportunities to interact with each other as students and instructors. So very cool. Okay, so we can find the magazine. You can subscribe to, of course, at FamilyTreeMagazine.com. And the university, you'll find at University.FamilyTreeMagazine.com. Andrew, always good to talk to you. Take care, and uh, we will probably talk to you next month. Yes, great catching up with you, Lisa. so glad you joined me for this June 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. If you enjoy this free podcast and you're listening to the show through a podcast app like Apple or Google Podcasts, will you do us a big favor? Pull up the Family Tree Magazine podcast and scroll down to the ratings and reviews section and just give us a five-star review. And if you have an extra second, how about writing a quick review and letting other genealogists know what you enjoy about the show? Your reviews really do help ensure that others find the show and give it a listen. We'd love to have folks join us here, and we really appreciate the important role that you play in that. So thank you. As always, I'll have links on the show notes webpage to everything that we talked about today. You can find those show notes at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and you can visit me at my website, genealogygems.com. Of course, if you haven't already, you can add the Genealogy Gems podcast to your podcast queue and join me over at youtube.com slash genealogygems for my YouTube live show, Elevenses with Lisa. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. <laughs> <laughs>